Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a longtime friend. We go all the way back, Liz, and I'm talking about the Chief Executive Officer of Shift Paradigm, the lovely and delightful and brilliant Liz Ross. Welcome, Liz. Well, thank you so much, Matt. What an honor to spend some time with you today. I'm really excited. This is a reunion. so Absolutely. We met right when we started Advertising Week, way back when, when you were working alongside another legend, the great Matt Freeman at Tribal DDB. One of the best. One One that still is. And uh, you are still uh, a force of nature today. So Liz, there's so many places to start with you. You've had such an interesting career. We're going to try to hit a lot of it. I know a lot of folks who uh, in school majored in different things and sort of inadvertently ended up in the advertising business. You go to Michigan State and you get a BA in advertising. So clearly this was on your mind. I I knew when I was 11 that I was going to work in advertising. This was my lifelong dream. My mother is an artist and my father is a computer programmer. And to me, advertising represented the very best of left brain and right brain thinking. And so I knew as a kid that I wanted to do it. I researched schools that were sort of focused on advertising. So University of Texas, Carnegie Mellon, Michigan State. And for me, I never wavered. My internships were all in some form of marketing, um, and I have I have stayed consistent since since I was eleven. That's amazing. Was there something that you remember when you go back into the catacombs of your brain <laughs> that sort of set you on that path? Yeah, you know what? It's it's somewhat embarrassing, but yet perhaps how many decisions are made. Uh, when I was a, eleven, I went. I would spend the summers with my godmother in Chicago, and one day she was a real real estate agent, and she needed to spend the day showing houses, and so she asked if I would spend the day with a good friend of hers who worked in advertising, and so I followed her around. She worked at BBDO in Chicago, and I spent the day with her, and at the end of the day, we went back to her condo and swam in her pool, and I remember thinking, this is the most glamorous life I could imagine. Wow, and here, all these years later, (laughs) how many years later, we won't reveal any. Uh, compromise any. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Yes. Thank so you. you end up at one of the great shops. And one of the things that I lament is we've lost a lot of great brands within the advertising world. One of those absolutely legendary. I'll still call it J. Walter Thompson. It was absolutely before they killed it off. But you end up working in biz dev at JWT. I think that was your first job. It, it sure was. Actually, my very first job, I started at J. Walter in the graphic design uh, studio. Okay. So I was keylining ads. Uh, I was doing layouts. And I quickly realized I started working on new business. And I would design all of the different materials for the new business pitches. And I would work, you know, we worked one hour. One week, we worked 90 hours, um, just insane amounts of time. But what I quickly realized was that we could be smarter about how we pitched. And the best part was because everybody at that time was very uncomfortable with the computer, they would take me to all the meetings. 
So I was this 22 year old kid sitting there. I would watch them pitch Michael Dell for his very first television campaign or at the time uh, Bob Eckert was running Kraft. And so we'd go in and, and pitch. I get to watch them pitch. And my job in the meeting essentially was to advance the slides. But I had spent all the time building the presentation rehearsing them. So I knew it so well that I could advance and help pace them, that I understood how they were sort of reforming and reshaping the agency. And what I realized was that business development is the lifeblood of agencies. And it is where you pitch who you want to be, not necessarily who you are. And in fact, what clients are buying in that room is who they wish they were, not necessarily who they are. Very well said. And Liz, not only did you have a passion that you were able to fulfill, but you also very early embraced technology before most of us knew what it was. Where do you think that came from? Yeah, so that is all my dad. So remember, my dad is a computer programmer. So as a kid, before many people, sort of this was common knowledge, my dad believed that we needed to understand how to program video games before we were allowed to play them. So we were learning basic, again, if then commands very early. We had a home computer before almost all of my friends. And in fact, I took uh, in 1990 a um, Windows 3.1 machine that cost $3,600 with 40 megabytes of memory. 40. How possibly could I have filled all of that um, to college? And I networked it in. I was able to, to log into some of those early systems in college and then ultimately jumped, jumped into sort of hardcore when I was doing design work, jumped into computing. But for me, the technology is just an enabler, right? It is, it is sort of glue underneath and it has permeated my career and really has, has been sort of the constant is sort of what's next, what's now, that, that premise of, of learning and embracing technology. Um, again, not because of what it um, individually does, but how it all connects. And I would think as part of sort of the foundation for you leading some great, great shops over the years, understanding what's going on in the engine when you pick the hood up, that's got to be very useful to say the least. It, it is. And it, it allows, I think, the, the ability to create better ideas, to understand client issues more deeply, and to really be able to design solutions that fundamentally are going to work because the technology isn't, I've never seen it as sort of this either great evil, which it is not, or this great solution. It's, it's neither of those things. And so understanding that mid-ground, I think, is, is critically important. So you then, Liz, sticking with that notion of biz dev as the lifeblood of any agency, move on early, early days, moving great, great clients like Delta and GM and Visa, sort of their very first forays into the online world, working at Moda Media, also in Chicago, as I recall. That's right. So I, I joined in 1998. Uh, Modem was really the first digital agency. They actually did the very first banner on the web uh, for AT&T, and it was on Wired. 
And the banner actually, the, the joke is that the banner said, um, will you click here? And then the, when you, the resolution was, well, you will. The joke obviously being that actually no one would, but it was a good thought at the time. And modem was really innovative. So building delta.com, you mentioned a bunch of citibank.com. And those days were pretty heady. Those are pre um, sort of internet bubble. Um, and I started in the Chicago office and then I moved to Connecticut where the headquarters were uh, out in Westport and commuted between uh, Westport and the Manhattan office and things just exploded. And then I ended up in 2001 going to San Francisco and then I spent the next 10 years out on the West Coast. But that that really, we, we grew to 1200 people. We had offices around the world. We won the, we beat Digitas for the General Motors account, which was $6 million. I mean, it was, it was big, heady times. And it, it felt like we were the, you know, the kids under, under the stairs that were going to change the world. So here we are in 2022. And it still feels like a lot of the blue chip companies of our country are still trying to figure out digital. Back then, you're talking about, you know, really the end of the last century and beginning of the 21st century. What would you look back on and say about the digital savviness of the leaders of those companies? You then moved on and worked with Coke in a lot of uh, big, important projects. Have they gotten smarter? Did they have any idea what they were doing then? Do they have any idea what they're doing today? Yeah, I, I find sometimes uh, that I'm in conversations that remind me of conversations I had 20 years ago. And that is always, disturbing is the wrong word, but it's frustrating. Sort of the, you know, digital transformation. Like if you know me well, and the idea that a digital transformation exists means that somebody in the world must be making an analog transition. So I don't really know what that means anymore because everything is digital and companies are getting savvier. I think in those early days where we were, I mean, we had conversations, if you can believe it, about whether or not Delta needed to own Delta.com because they didn't. A guy was parked on it. He had made them an offer to sell it to them for some amount of money and they didn't do it. And for years, Delta was Delta-airline.com. And so you, you go back to those times, McDonald's didn't own their URL. All of these sort of really interesting <laughs> and pretty fundamental discussions. So I would argue then that clients were very trusting and, and knew they needed to make this transition. I think things started to slow when suddenly everybody felt like they understood it and that they had all the answers. And so agencies were trusted less, clients were sort of doing their own thing. And here we are today, 20 plus years later, and we're still talking about customer control. We're still talking about delivering the right message to the right person at the right time. We're better, for sure, we're better. And certainly some of the biggest companies in the world have gotten incredibly smart and savvy about data and messaging, but we've still got a ways to go. And that's pretty amazing. 
you know, we all spend many hours of many days talking about how much the world has changed and how fast everything is happening. In truth, when you look backwards, a lot of things have changed for sure. But there are many things in, in marketing and advertising in particular that are relatively stagnant. And that sort of always, you know, I always love to dig into the why, um, but that there, there very much are sort of these planks that exist in the industry that feel somewhat immovable. And, you know, again, I think we've, we've got a ways to go. You know, I, I think you're right. And, and, you know, it's so en vogue to use that phrase, digital transformation, it, it almost has come to mean nothing at this point. Exactly. It yeah. is branding. It's a word like branding. To me, yeah. I don't know what that means. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. The number of players who are around then, talk about the landscape because a lot of those great names and brands and players have disappeared. When you look back on that period, not only creative shops like JWT, but so many of the technology-driven players, who were some of the big players who you dealt with then who you thought would make it and perhaps didn't? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, I think if you look at the roll-up that Seneca did that Omnicom bought, so organic, agency.com, and there was a third. See, can't even remember it. I would have thought those brands would have superseded the agency brands faster. Um, and in fact, they just sort of were subsumed into BBDO, <clears throat> DDB, and um, TBWA. And partly, when you, what you see really drives a lot of that is how the holding companies approached innovation and those agencies. So WPP really, from a top-down perspective really didn't believe that the agency brand mattered all that much, right? They were the first ones to create that custom agency for Dell because who really cares if it's Young and Rubicam or it's JWT or it's Ogilvy, it's all kind of the same versus Omnicom, which has really held creativity at its core. It's something I've always really admired about my time at Omnicom. And, and so and then you've get an IPG in the mix, which has sort of taken a whole different approach. So when I when you look at those players, and I, I think back to Digitas for sure, at that time it was called Bronner, Schlossberg, and O'Neill, right? Those way back in those early days. You know, the some of those brands have continued, but even Digitas is now, you know, there's Publicis Modem, because you know, a modem was bought by Publicis there's been this real mashup or consolidation between things that were historically analog or historically digital. Again, understanding there's really, I don't know what that means. And so VMLYNR, right, is a great example of that. And it's ironic that an industry so focused on building brands is so terrible at managing their own. Um, but you really see it across, you see it across the industry. And I, I would argue that it's primarily driven um, into how the holding companies think about those brands is really where that is primarily happening. And with the benefit of hindsight, yeah. do you think the holding companies in particular, but in general, has the industry devalued 
the importance of charismatic leaders and personalities in favor of just an embrace of data and analytics and all the intangible tech-driven pieces of the business? A thousand percent, a thousand percent. I think the industry is playing it way, way, way too safe. And, you know, even to sort of responding to the politics of the day. And, you know, I saw a headline this morning that was about, you know, the advertising and marketing community has a critical responsibility as it relates to gun control. And while I think it's a key issue and you can't have gone, lived through the last week and not thought about it or have, what is the industry's responsibility? Are we supposed to create more pro bono campaigns that nobody looks at? And I think the, we have to really look at where we as an industry lead and push. And I think because everybody got so risk averse, no one was willing to sort of put a stake in the ground and let you know leaders and people of that are charismatic and agency people are notoriously unpredictable i would say and that's what really has made this industry so much fun and it's also a lot of what has gone unfortunately yeah i i lament the loss of a lot of those charismatic leaders and hope that that will come back um i, I worry about the dominance of you know the rise of the engineer. Yeah. And uh, okay, so interesting stuff. I, I could talk about this forever. So <laughs> let's talk about uh, where we met, uh, which was at Tribal DDB. And when I tell the story, and you know it much better than I, you know, going back to that time period, there were really two agencies that were first to the dance. One was RGA, of course, the great Bob Greenberg, who was in digital before any of us knew what it was. And then there was our mutual friend, Matt Freeman, uh, and Tribal DDB. You started there as a VP, you rose to become president of the agency and had a great, great tenure there, about five years or so as president. Yep. Talk about DDB, Tribal DDB, um, and what it all looks like reflecting on it almost 20 years later. Yeah, it, this is the dragon I chase because those times were so magical and challenging, but in the best possible way. I have been, since I left Tribal, looking to recreate that every step of my career. And I've, I've told Matt that. And what was amazing about that time was that we were in this agency inside of the DDB framework. And at that time it was run by Keith Reinhardt, right in Ken Case, who loved creativity and they loved the power of ideas. And what we were doing was sort of off to the side and you know, really sort of challenging how creativity could be brought to life through you know, these emerging channels, websites and online advertising, email, all of it. And it was, it was amazing. I mean, I was part of lucky enough to be a part of the pitch for Intel the very small Omnicom team led by John Wren himself. And, you know, we, we pitched and it was just, now we didn't win, but it was transformative to be in those rooms and to talk about sort of what's the future of the space and the future of agencies. Tribal was incredibly successful, incredibly. I mean, we were delivering a mar high margin work, 
uh, which was a surprise to the agency that had sort of lost focus on silly little things like margin, but also work that was brilliantly creative, right? The Shave Everywhere campaign, if you remember, mm -hmm. that, again, changed the way that product launched. We could tell a product story. We could be funny. We could be memorable. All the things that had sort of been ascribed to television and not to anything that was happening in online. And there was a really small group of us that were doing it. Matt had sort of four key people and Matt himself, as, as you know, is, is literally one of the best people that walks the planet, truly. And the four of us built this gigantic global agency and it, it was magic. It really was. And um, unfortunately, Ken Case dies um, he again, much earlier than obviously expected, changed the trajectory and the new management at DDB really saw tribal as a threat. And I don't know if this is public knowledge, but I'll share it with you because I think it's enough time has passed. But we had put together a presentation for DD's man DDB's management that took the assets of tribal and the assets of DDB, and we merged them together to create two fully integrated companies. One was going to be called tribal and one was going to be called DDB. And we looked at potential account growth. We looked at conflict management to really build the whole thing. And uh, the management of DDB summarily rejected it. And what they did was ask us to live in the gray and carry two business cards. And for me, I, I, I can't do that. I can't pretend to be both things. I sort of plant the flag and I live and breathe the brand that I'm working for, because I actually believe that that matters. And so at the end of the day, that was the, the death knell for tribal, but it was, it was an incredible, incredible time and, and a life-changing experience. You can argue that that was a colossal mistake in retrospect. And let's talk about Ken for a, a minute or two. He doesn't get talked about much anymore, yeah. but Ken Case who was our very first chairman of Advertising Week, and yeah. you tell the story often. As you, as you recall, Ken was incredibly charismatic, incredibly charming. Oh, yes. Not a great public speaker. Oh. And he had to speak at our very first opening gala at Gracie Mansion, which I think you were at that night. I was, I was. And I remember we gave him like two drinks, which was just enough <laughs> to relax him, but before, you know, he would be compromised. And he did a wonderful job. Um, was a great uh, friend and leader uh, to us, as was and is Keith Reinhardt, who thankfully is still with us. Yep. Um, but Ken really understood Matt and you and the leadership team. And uh, had he not gotten uh, that very unlucky, to say the least, cancer break, I think the fortunes would have been very different. I 100% agree with you. I, I mean, I thought that my career, I, I was DDB, Omnicom, tribal through and through. And I do believe that, that a lot of what we had put forth would have come to pass. And I think it would have sort of changed DDB's trajectory and what I believe would have been an incredibly positive, incredibly positive way because they really would have led and been, you know, easily 10 years ahead of sort of the digital trans digital transformation. There's that word again, of the other agencies. And they would have been fully integrated 
long before other agencies had had even started down that path. And I know they still have some strength in different parts of the world. I think their New Zealand office is still mm -hmm. really strong. But Amsterdam. when you look, yeah, yeah, where? Amsterdam. Amsterdam. But when you look at their fortunes relative to their, you know, brother and sister, BBDO and TBWA over that same period of time, it's a very different story. Very much. Very much. Very unfortunately. Interesting. Um, and you then as it sort of all unravels uh, with the decisions Omnicom made to effectively kill it, um, you uh, go to Digitas. And I'd love to talk about that a little bit. You also had a great tenure at IPG and uniquely would love to get to and take it any order you like perspective on the different holding companies because you've touched just about all. of them. I sure have. Um, so I went to Digitas to work for Seth Solomons, um, who I still think is just um, underappreciated in, in his thinking and strategic uh, sort of fortitude. And I did it really because after leaving Tribal, um, which as I think you know, but it's always worth um, saying out loud so people don't, uh, don't think or it normalizes, right? But, but Tribal surprised me and fired me. And I had made my number, I had done everything asked of me and I was, I've never been more shocked. I've never been more shocked then or since. And because I had really felt like I was tribal and I was carrying that flag. And so that changed a great amount of my life personally, frankly, and professionally. But when I looked at my options after tribal and, and I had a number of them, I had conversations with Miles and, you know, different, different sort of organizations, Digitas had bought Modem. And I, there were still people that I knew from Modem. I knew David, obviously, from when we were all sort of working together, he was close with Matt Freeman. And for me, going to Digitas felt a little bit, even though it wasn't exactly like going home, because I loved what Digitas was doing with data. I was really interested in how they were working that side of the angle. And, and then obviously inside of the Publicis family, which I hadn't, uh, holding company family, which I hadn't touched. And then uh, modem, was sort of subsumed into that culture. So it was much more digitized, but again, I liked it. Uh, but Matt Freeman, again, he seems to keep coming up here, but he and I had, uh, he called me and said, you gotta come to IPG and work with me at Media Brands. And candidly, my first reaction was, oh, please don't make me learn media um, because I just, I'm a creative and this is gonna be so complicated. In reality, anytime Matt calls me in any parts of the world and says, you're going to come here, my answer is always going to be yes, right? So I joined him at Ventures inside of IPG. And I think, you know, Publicis was very digitally forward. I mean, they had obviously made the huge purchase of, of Digitas, which was, you know, just sort of a, at the time, it felt like a mind-bendingly expensive amount. But they were also um, a little removed from the U.S. market. I had, you know, my experience had been with Omnicom where, you know, John and his management team are so sort of tightly integrated into the fabric of those agencies. And so suddenly everything felt a little removed, right? It's, it's overseas. There's some cultural differences. 
Um, and so going to IPG, again, felt interesting. It felt a little more of like an upstart and it's, you know, it's Matt Freeman, it's Matt Seiler, you've got uh, Richard over at Initiative. So you have this kind of crew of people around media and innovation and ventures inside of IPG had bought a small but a percentage of Facebook long before it had gone public. They had made some really smart investments. And so to be a part of that felt like, okay, I can learn media from this angle. Um, and then I was lucky enough to be able to start the third media agency alongside UM and Initiative, um, which we called BPN. And so that was sort of taking my entrepreneurial spirit, if you will, and being able to create an agency. And IPG, very innovative, very forward, sort of pretty aggressive company. Um, and that felt great. And so being able to, to build BPN, uh, you'll remember we talked about it for Advertising Week. And the premise of that agency was media, but the way we structured it was radical common sense. And that was this premise of like, let's get down to basics. What actually makes sense? Why are we making these decisions? So that as I talked earlier about some of these immovable forces in our industry that seem to stay set stagnant, the upfront, right? Super Bowl buys. How do we make sure that we're applying a lens of common sense to what we do in order to actually make sure what we're doing makes sense? And so that was BPN. And then Matt Seiler asked me to join him and be the global CMO where we talked about advertising week again. And again, great time. And then the whole management team shifted. And then ultimately Matt was out and most of his management team was, was out, which at the end of the day was, was just fine. So let's uh, stay where we are for a second. Give us perspective on the various holding companies. You sure. involved with them all of them at the highest level. Uh, this is not advertising week TMZ. Yeah. But, <laughs> so, what comes to mind? And if you, you know, if you were Nero and you could go and say, okay, you're gonna run one of these, who would you pick? My heart, my heart is always with Omnicom. And even though I was fired from Omnicom and spent six months on the floor of my house trying to figure out who I was, I think Omnicom is just an amazing company. And if you look at its origins and you look at Keith and you look at, you know, Keith hired John Ren to be his finance guy. It really is a company that is built on the power of creativity and the power of ideas and, you know, John at his core understands that. And so that to me is the differentiator. And I say this all the time. And I think to sort of shift perspective to a company like WPP, one of the reasons I believe that clients hire agencies is because they provide services and thinking and products that they cannot build themselves. And so to your point about the characters, right? We have to be different. If we are simply meant to dissolve inside of our companies with blue shirts and khaki pants, there's low value there. And so the, you know, WPP's sort of dismissal of the brands or, 
you know, the killing of JWT or YNR, it, it removes some of that, why they hire us in the first place. And so I think WPP sort of led that with, you know, Mart, Sir Martin, very financially focused and, and brilliant at it, but it was that above all else. Uh, Publicis, very French, um, and very French even in the way they deal with their employees. Um, and even today, right, if you look at Marcel or, or sort of how some of these decisions are, are being rolled out, they're being rolled out almost in spite of their employees, not in support of. And so it's this sort of patriarchal European kind of company to me that is supercharged in the decisions Maurice made around technology purchases, but fundamentally how they deal with employees, I think still, again, isn't as global as they perhaps presume it is. And, you know, IPG to me always felt like the upstart. They had had some such significant challenges financially and restatements and Michael sort of led them through that. Um, and so IPG really innovative and very entrepreneurial. I think Philippe has sort of will continue that, that uh, sort of march, if you will, and is, is really well positioned there. But for me, my heart forever lives at Omnicom. That's a great answer. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for Michael and, and wish only the best for Philippe. I think he's got some much bigger shoes to fill than Michael's, you know, given credit for. I think he did a really brilliant job in keeping RGA and Bob in the fold. Uh, you know, there was a, an era, as you recall, when, you know, they were truly King Kong. And, and Absolutely. I remember when they moved to that new office uh, yeah. on the west side of Manhattan, I was over one day, Bob invited me for lunch and take me around the office, which was beyond impressive. And um, they had a huge catering operation in the middle of one of the floors. And I joke with them, I said, Bob, your mother would be so proud. You've grown up to be a Jewish caterer. (laughs) The uh, enormity of what they mean in history to our industry, I think is is not given credit along with tribal DDB. So I'm glad we got to talk about tribal in particular, of course. Let's talk about another big area as we tackle big, big pieces of the pie. And that's the evolution of creative the last 20 years. And uh, I noted your comment, Matt, please don't make me work in media. Yep. (laughs) Matt Freeman. Uh, But an awful lot of the great creative work that we're seeing now is coming on the media side. And that's a significant change. Yeah. I'd love your perspective on sort of the evolution of creative going back to your early graphic design days at JWT in the early 90s, you know, right up until today. Yeah, I, uh, it's a great point. And it's something I think about often. What happened in creative was instead of moving upstream with the strategy, if you will, it almost moved closer to the money. Right. And so you actually saw the channel dictate the creative as opposed to here's the idea. Now, how can we make it work in this channel? So, you know, TikTok, right? One of my current and embarrassing um, addictions. It's a totally different format. 
so it almost dictates the creative versus the other way around. Sort of what will work on TikTok is very different than something that would work on a television campaign, despite the fact that both are video. And so I do think that media is a place for a great deal of innovation. And the industry would be wise. Everybody's talked about it for 20 years in the context of conversations we've been having for 20 years. It's silly that creative and media are separate. Um, it's silly that, you know, it's no longer a clout game. So it's, you know, to, to have these massive agencies that are divided and, hey, we're all under the same roof and we work together, like, get out of here. These things should be back together because to your point, the innovation is happening really closer to where the money is spent and getting our greatest creative minds, thinking about them at a early nascent level would make the industry better. And the divide actually, I believe long-term hurt us as an industry in, in many cases, much more than helped us. And yes, we needed to negotiate more effectively with you know, a broader mix of, of companies, but now is probably the time, although I've been saying this for 10 years, so it's probably 10 more years, but that we should be bringing these together because the best creative minds are still not, somebody's gonna be mad at me for this, but that's okay, are not inside of the media agencies. The best creative minds are still either inside of clients or they're inside of the creative agencies and bringing them closer to those media teams would make everything better. And you've been a passionate advocate for creativity while embracing technology your whole career. Yeah. Um, let's talk about something else. And that's the Midwest. Yep. There's something about the ethos of people from the Midwest that's very unique. Uh, people that spend a lot of time in places like Illinois and Michigan and Wisconsin. <laughs> and I know you're in LA and New York and all over. But talk about that because there's a specialness I find to folks who have, you know, the, uh, the Midwest running through their veins. Well, thank you for that. So I have a whole theory, will not surprise you, about innovation and weather. So let me tell you. So in places where there is really big temperature swings, I mean, 100 degree swings, Chicago, Minneapolis, People are always thinking about their natural environment. You're either thinking about, I got to get the summer furniture out, I got to plant, or I'm taking stuff down, I'm putting it away. And so you, you're controlling or thinking about a lot of things, which means you're less willing to adopt sort of silly innovation because you don't have time for it. When I lived in California, your temperature swing is like 10 degrees, maybe. So you never are putting away clothes, you're never putting away furniture or taking it out. It's just the same. And so you can be more open to sort of silly innovations, which is in many cases, what's driving us all, which is why I'm glad that that exists. The reason the Midwest has always been so important to me, I'm from the Midwest, so that's part of it, but it always felt like a touchstone for what actual people are doing. And if you spend too much time in the West Coast, you believe that you know Amazon next week is gonna be delivering packages by drone. 
it's just a matter of time, you know, my Tylenol is coming and it's going to be dropped off on my windowsill. If you live in New York, you believe that everything is always intense and crowded and you've got to fight and you've got to make your way through. And, you know, everybody buys toilet paper in four pack rolls because you can only get a certain amount and you're carrying it home. And the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? Is that there's people that live in houses that means that you go to Costco and you buy the big pack of toilet paper and you put it in the big closet. And there's other environmental factors, which mean Midwest people are incredibly practical because they have to be to sort through what innovations they can onboard, what's actually gonna make their lives better. And I do think that as marketers, we can tend to sort of breathe our own fumes and you can see it, right? You see it in advertising all the time. I worked with United Health Group for a while and we would talk about the ads that the West Coast agency would present for Medicare. And it was always a woman doing yoga on a beach with, you know, short, white, you know, spunky hair, haircut, beautiful, you know, in her 60s, sun-kissed. And that exists for no one. And so relevance, anchors, practicality live in the Midwest. And for me, that is a filter by which I can look at creativity, but I can also look at technology. And it's, it's my home when I was on the West Coast and I moved back to the Midwest, Chicago in 2009, it felt like, okay, I've done my time. I'm glad I did it. I tell everyone that in the Midwest, live on the East Coast, live on the West Coast, live in the South so that you can know it. But at some point, you know, I believe that the Midwest has a unique ethos and a unique perspective. That was so well uh, told. Uh, I had no idea I was going to get such a good answer, Liz. Throw away question, but that was such a great answer. And I love your theory around weather. I never thought of it that way. But I guess, you know, if it's one thing that we've learned the last few last few years, it's our ability to adapt and survive. And that comes in many, many contexts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another shop that brought us back together where we had a lot of fun at Advertising Week was Periscope. Yeah. Can we talk about that a little? Absolutely. So when I was leaving media brands, um, I was looking for what is that next thing? And I was approached about this independent shop of 500 people in Minneapolis, a city I had never thought about at all. And the idea was, can we put this on the map? And it felt like, at first it felt like, absolutely not, absolutely not. I, I'm holding company, I work for the best agency brands. And as I got to know the agency and the people there, it felt like there's something amazing here. And so if you remember, I said at the beginning, I've been chasing that tribal dragon, right? And the idea was, could we make Periscope into something really interesting, very different, and build a team that felt like that, that we were taking on the world? And really, that's what we did. And it, again, was a, was a wonderful agency that had you know, some creative capabilities when I got there, but had a heavy production backend. And the idea was, can we add world-class creative onto the front of this with Peter Nicholson? And 
bring together an agency that could rival the Richards Group or, you know, our, our North Star was Wyden and Kennedy. I wouldn't say we ever got there, but the premise was, could we put ourselves in that world? And I would argue we did an okay job and, you know, built it up. It was incredibly well run from a business standpoint. We were incredibly uh, profitable and, and focused on growth. And, you know, the owner, of course, then went through a decision where he wanted to exit the business. And I thought it was a little bit too early, but he obviously I didn't own it. So it wasn't really my choice. Um, and so then we went through and, and completed a very successful a transaction for him, which for me was also a great touchstone or learning to sort of how do you package and sell an agency? And that ended up, again, being an incredibly successful transaction and, again, sort of changed the trajectory of what I thought my whole career would be. But that's, that's been, the, been the premise all along, right? It all changes and everything that you think will happen will happen differently. But at the end of the day, it's all just fine. Uh, the, the common threads are uh, incredibly thoughtful, grounded leadership. And that's what you've provided every way you've been. And I'd be hard pressed to think of someone who has led more companies, large and small, successfully than you have. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I like to believe that that's sort of my superpower, right, is to sort of organize people, inspire people, and, and move things forward in a thoughtful and grounded way, but also with with expediency and focus. That's uh, it's a great, great story. So let's talk about uh, today. Yeah. Um, shift paradigm, sort of the confluence of insights, technology, data, and all about driving revenue. Um, how did you get there? And tell us about shift paradigm, because before you went there, they were not on my radar. Now, of course, they are. Well, thank you. So when I was sort of looking at, okay, what does the next chapter look like? For me, it was where are investors or private equity companies building platforms and to start to bring these things together. The shift paradigm is actually today a sort of combination of five separate companies and has some of the markers of Periscope, right? We have a heavy production focus for some of our clients, primarily delivering email through Salesforce installation. So moving uh, into sort of SaaS-based uh, production systems and really then data and technology consulting. And so it was like, okay, let's start to think about how these things come together. And I love that kind of challenge. What I hadn't done was worked in a private equity-backed platform. I had frankly run from it for most of my career, uh, most notably, and I, I, I tell this to his face all the time, but my brother is in private equity. Um, so I was always worried about working for my brother. Uh, and coming here, when I started to look at it, it felt like we had such an opportunity. Today, every again, to the point of 20-year conversations, we've been talking about customer data for 20 years. We've been talking about the implementation of technology to capture and journey and deliver messaging and structures and relationships with companies for 20 years. Today, what's out there is 
you know, almost 100% of companies are investing in some level of SaaS-based system. They're investing in CDPs or data lakes or some version. And yet nobody's moved all that far ahead. And so to me, it felt like I could start to bring sort of these set of capabilities together. I'll be adding more, as you can imagine, as we, over the course of the next year, two years, to really build out a full service SaaS-based solution for clients who have either invested in some technology today and it's not working, they've invested in, they have incomplete tech stacks, or they're companies that don't have a lot of first-party data. And now with the elimination of the cookie or sort of casting about trying to understand what they can leverage, where they can find it, things like dark social or other ways to, to really understand who they're talking to. And ultimately then be able to apply creative and messaging solutions that are fed through and enhanced and driven by that data. So it, it feels like the confluence of everything I've done, and maybe that's wishful thinking, but it all has led me here. So I'll take it as the, as the win. But the idea is really to take data and what we know about customers and be able to actually deliver messaging, creative ideas that ultimately help companies grow. And it sounds so simple, but ultimately there's, there's a million gaps in there that we're working to make better. Well, it sounds like that you're positioning the, the company to deliver on the promise that mostly goes unfulfilled. Exactly, exactly. And to maybe, just maybe, if I, I make progress, that the 10 years from now, when we're back together, um, hopefully we're all in Florida on a beach somewhere drinking margaritas, that we won't be having the same conversation 10 years from now as we were 20 years ago and that we have moved forward and that we've connected all of these dots. Because remember, technology is the glue. It's not an individual solution. You don't buy Salesforce and then everything gets better. It's just glue. And so what we're looking to do is to connect the pieces to make, again, the conversations we had 20 years ago be different 10 years from now. Well, that's a great way to wrap, Liz. I can't think of a better, uh, better way to conclude what has been an absolutely thrilling conversation to get to hear parts of the story I didn't know um, and uh, to rekindle memories of uh, very special people that have been in both of our lives like Ken Case and, and Matt Freeman. So I wish you every success. As always, we are, we are here to support you and anything you're doing, any and every way we can. And I hope to see you in person soon. I look forward to it, Matt. Thank you so much. Chaptering and other structural elements for this podcast are powered by Snackable AI. With the ability to unify all content in one place, have AI distill the best insights instantaneously and share them seamlessly, Businesses on Snackable create more relevant value for their audiences faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.